My guest on this episode is Robin Steinberg. She is the founder of The Bail Project, which is the country's largest bail reform effort. It's a pretty genius workaround the system. The way cash bail works is that you put down a certain amount of money that frees you until you face your trial, which is utter bullshit. I'll let Robin explain why that's bullshit, you know, as we get into the episode. But that that's the idea around bail. Now Unfortunately, most folks cannot afford that number, especially the types of folks that are targeted by police and end up arrested. And so they sit in jails uh, and wait for weeks, sometimes months, sometimes years to get their day in court, which includes all of five minutes with a public defender usually. And so because of this system, a lot of folks take plea deals and build criminal records, not because they're guilty or not. It's just they can't spend the time awaiting trial. They'll lose their kids, they'll lose their job, etc. So it is one of the more atrocious issues within an atrocious system. And I feel really honored to be able to learn firsthand from Robin. She's definitely an, an OG in the criminal justice reform movement. She's been doing this for a long, long time. And their hope is to you know, create enough data around what happens when people don't have to pay bail, if they don't have that financial incentive to come back for their money. The big question being, do failure to appears go up? Do people stop coming back to court, which through their efforts we're finding out is not true? And do people commit more crimes when they're out? If we're not bailing people out based on wealth, if we're doing it through some other measurement, does that create a more dangerous society? One of the frustrating things for me when we have these conversations about is that more dangerous or not is we don't take into account the danger for the people that are incarcerated. It is very dangerous to sit in a county jail. It's an awful, awful situation. And our ethos is innocent until proven guilty. But we're not treating people that way. Anyways, I'm taking away a bit from what she's going to get into in the episode. You're better off learning from her. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's such an important week to educate ourselves on justice reform in America. So I appreciate you for being here. Let's get into it. project was actually created and launched as an emergency response to humanitarian crisis we had in this country anyway, which is called pre-trial detention, right? That is based on how much money you have um, in your bank account, right? Whether you can pay your bail or not pay your bail made all the difference. So, the, you know, the bail project was actually created and launched as an emergency response to humanitarian crisis we had in this country anyway, which is called pre-trial detention, right? That is based on how much money you have um, in your bank account, right? Whether you can pay your bail or not pay your bail made all the difference to safety because to leave people in jail cells across this country who can't socially distance, who don't have access to healthcare, who can't protect themselves, from this virus that clearly is coming and is going to sort of spread rapidly in a jail that already has sort of cramped conditions and lack of ventilation and no way to distance yourself. You know, we're working in Cook County, right? And that's become one of the epicenters of the virus in jails. And we watched as, you know, in just one month, there were two confirmed cases, two being hundreds of confirmed cases, and people are dying. 
And so we ramped up our efforts in Cook County and did a mass bailout in April and got 200, 250 people home in those first couple of weeks, trying to work as quickly as we can to get people out of harm's way. Cash bail in the context of COVID-19 really turns poverty into a potential death sentence. And no matter what side of the political aisle you're on and what your perspectives are in the criminal legal system, most people look at that and think that is unconscionable and unforgivable and something has to be done about it. As you've taught me and several other people in the field have taught me, jail without COVID-19 can be a death sentence or at a minimum, something that's completely disruptive to your life forever, whether that's, you know, you have to take a plea deal and now you can't get work or you lose your kids because you can't make bail or how are you thinking about, can we move the ball forward here and talk about why your life shouldn't be ruined forever because of these things either? So I think one of the things that we're seeing both in COVID and pre-COVID, right, was a growing recognition that holding people in jail cells who haven't been convicted of crimes, who are simply there because they can't pay their cash bail because they don't have the money, is unforgivable and creates a two-tier system of justice. And that was beginning to get a lot of traction before COVID. And then when COVID hits, I think the light actually got even brighter. And people began to really talk about this issue in an unprecedented way, because all of a sudden there was a light being shown, not just on the injustice of cash bail, not just on how many people we've been holding in jail cells through mass incarceration over these decades, but the conditions that people are living in and the conditions people are forced to engage in, which are dangerous and dehumanizing and do often lead to death, either at the hands of somebody else or potential suicide, that's before COVID. When COVID's coming in, there has all of a sudden been this renewed understanding of what we've been doing to people and the conditions we put people in. And I think all of us, I hope, are having a little bit of a reckoning generally with what we're going to do at this moment and how this is going to define us. And if you know that COVID is making its way, I mean, look, I would make the argument we all should have known what the conditions of jails were all along. We should have been moving to decarcerate a long time ago. But if what it takes is a crisis like this to bring people's attention to it, then let's use this crisis to really make long-term lasting change that decarcerates state after state, city after city. Because this moment you know, in history is going to define who we are as a people. And we're going to look back on this and history is going to judge us. What did we do in this moment to protect people who are the most vulnerable and the most vulnerable people are sitting in jail cells who are predominantly from low-income communities. They're disproportionately black and brown. Women are disproportionately impacted. Marginalized communities are disproportionately impacted. And how did we respond in this moment? I know there's been a lot of traction lately on the discussion around the injustice of cash bail. Why do you think the deep injustice of it is so not obvious to so many people before they have these types of conversations? So, you know, partly it is the inability of people to put themselves into other people's shoes, right? It's the inability of people to say, I can't understand what it would be like to be locked in this cage looking at the dangers and the harm that happens from that experience, being separated from my family and separated from my job because I don't have $500 to pay. But look, I think the other thing is the idea that if you just pay enough money, that will make people come back to court is an idea that feels intuitively like it makes some sense. Well, yeah, you have some skin in the game. You put something on the line until you really begin to understand that that was a myth and that the American cash flow system grew up on that myth. Um, I was a public defender for 35 years. I operated in a system where I thought that that might be true, that it was money that created an incentive for people to come back to court if they were lucky enough to be able to pay it. 
And when we started my very first foray into the revolving bail fund of the Bronx Freedom Fund uh, in 2007, and then we tracked that data for 10 years, and it became very obvious very quickly because we were using donated money to pay somebody's cash bill for low-income residents of the South Bronx, that people were coming back 95% of the time. So cash had nothing to do with what encourages people to come back to court. People come back to court because it's in their best interest to come back to court. And they come back to court because when the court tells them to come back, most people will come back to court because that's what they're told to do. And so the first thing we had to do was smash that myth. Right? And the only way to really do that was to collect the data, right? And the only way to do that was to use philanthropic money and say, here, this client now has no skin in the game. It's somebody else's money. If they don't come back to court, they don't lose anything. And yet they still come back 95% of the time. So we know that cash bail is not what creates an incentive for people to come back to court. Once we got past that, right, then it opened up the door for a lot of other questions about how the system was operating and what it should look like, what pretrial justice ought to look like without cash bail. How far along your career as a public defender were you when you started playing with the idea of maybe we need to test this hypothesis that cash is necessary in this equation? Oh, I'm embarrassed to say that, that I practiced for a very, very long time as a public defender. I saw clients being hauled off to Rikers Island on a daily basis because they didn't have $250 or $500 or $1,000 to pay. And it never occurred to me that there was a way to disrupt that system until much, much later in my career. And having a conversation with my husband, who was also a public defender, and batting around this idea of there must be something we can do because we were so frustrated and we were both operating in, as public defenders in the South Bronx, which was the least resourced community in New York City, and the idea of a revolving fund. One of the things we tested for a long time was also not just would people come back. Um, we learned quickly that cash bail wasn't what incentivized people to come back. All they needed was effective court notifications and reminders and being connected to supports or services they might need, like transportation or other things to get them to court. The interesting part that we couldn't have predicted was tracking what the impact cash bail and the ability to pay it or not pay it has on your case outcomes. And what we saw in the Bronx was when we paid cash bail, over half the cases got dismissed. And so that tells you a lot, right, about that balance of power and the ability to fight your case. Why is that? What happens when you're free versus when you're forced to stay incarcerated pretrial? So when you're out, I think prosecutors review cases more carefully. I think judges look at cases more carefully. Everybody knows that if you are stuck in a jail cell, that you're going to plead guilty to go home, whether you did the crime or not. And I think systems players rely on that notion, right? Uh, he's in, I'll just make him a good offer. He'll be able to go home. So people don't do the real analysis that needs to go on. They have high caseloads. They're busy with other things. They're working, you know, from courtroom to courtroom. And once people are out, they recognize, oh, I better look at this carefully. Can I sustain this case? Can I prove this case? If this went to trial, would I be able to prove this case? Did this person actually do it? Once you remove the coercive lever of cash bail, all of the incentives to ignore that change. And I think prosecutors and judges and sometimes even defenders look more deeply at the charges that are facing somebody and whether they're in fact sustainable and whether in fact there's evidence that somebody did the crime. You know, whenever we're ask, asking our country to change their system, it's always great to provide the alternative. What is the right alternative that we should be moving towards? What we're learning and the more we do this work, and we've done over 10,000 bailouts in the past two years, what we're seeing very, very clearly, right, is 
All you really need to do is what we call release to community with voluntary supports. You just, if you release people with reminders about their court dates and you connect them to the services, the basic needs that people have that aren't being met, they will come back to court the overwhelming majority of time and resolve their cases, right? And so what are we really trying to do when you slap an ankle monitor on somebody, when you create probation-like conditions for people to comply with before, by the way, anybody's been convicted of a crime? It's always important to remember this conversation happens and people often forget. They go, but what about the guy charged with X? I'm always like, it's a charge. It's an allegation. We know from our work that when you pay bail, a third to a half of people's cases will get dismissed. So you have to really stay grounded in the idea that the presumption of innocence applies to everybody, regardless of race and class. It was not created just for affluent white people to have the privilege of exerting. It actually belongs to all of us. And then to ask ourselves the question, what are we grappling with? And I think really, Xander, under it all, what people don't want to talk about is we're grappling with this concept of danger. So when you talk about let's abolish cash bail, you still have to grapple with the concept that there may be people that if they were released and there were not supports in the community or the infrastructures don't exist, who could pose a risk to themselves or to another person, that's what the system is trying to grapple with. The problem is we've addressed that exception, that rare circumstance, as if that's the norm. That is not the norm. The overwhelming majority of folks can be released without cash bail, go home to their families, and as long as they have effective court reminders and are connected to the services they need, everything will go fine. There are going to be rare exceptions, and there are going to be some people that get out and something terrible may happen, and certainly that's cause for reflection. But you can't legislate around the exception. What we need to do is think about a pretrial justice system that recognizes that the presumption ought to be that people can be released. They should be released with the least onerous, least complicated restrictions possible. And that in those rare exceptional circumstances where the state with the prosecutor and the government have actual proof and actual evidence that somebody may pose a risk to themselves or to a person in the community, then that determination needs to be made in an open courtroom in a transparent process where the accused has counsel, can cross-examine witnesses, can present witnesses on their behalf, and the government has the burden of proving this person may in fact harm another person if they're released. And that anything short of that system, right, will continue mass incarceration at the level that we have it now and will never get to a real sense of justice. And it has to be done in a real hearing, in a real way that we would want if it was our own child or our own loved one, or our own partner who is standing there and facing the unbelievable power of government to take away your freedom. Part of the issue with all this is we aren't counting the dangers that the incarcerated individuals are facing just by being there, that, that it's not a success. And we have good data around how harmed they would be if they remain there. So how, how do we start being more inclusive in how we talk about harm? There is a false narrative about what jails are in this country. We have 3,000 yeah. local jails across this country. We are churning millions of people through those local jails every single day. They are out of sight. They are out of most people's minds. And what's happening to people in those jail cells is unconscionable. Children are being taken from their parents. People are being subjected to physical and sexual violence in jails. People can't get access to health care and their health deteriorates or mental health deteriorates. And that's just what happens to you when you're in your jail cell. And then you have to think about what's happening to your family on the outside. You now can't have your job or you're not in school and your family's being harmed and your kids are being harmed and your community has got a hole and is being harmed as well. 
And so that kind of harm spreads all across communities and all across this country. And I think you're exactly right, is we don't think about that in terms of harm or danger or public safety. It is all part of that equation. What would you say, so I'm someone who, you know, my family directly experienced a murder. My father was murdered. Put me back to nine years old when it happened. Robin Steinberg, you're talking to me and they're saying, hey, you know, his trial's coming up in a month. This guy's got to be out there. What would you say to you know, a family member or even nine-year-old me about why that's the right thing to do? You know, the first thing I'd say is I'm so sorry that this happened to you. And I'm so sorry that you're experiencing this. And you open up a space for people who have been harmed in any way they have to have those feelings and express them in the ways that they need to express them. There's a reason that people who have been the victims of crime don't make the decisions. That doesn't mean they can't have a voice and certainly doesn't mean people can't have feelings, but what crime and punishment look like is a collective agreement in a society about what we think is appropriate and not appropriate. And so I guess I would say to that person, you know, I honor your feelings and they belong to you and you can express them in the ways that you want to express them. But at the end of the day, the criminal legal system is the place where it gets determined what guilt and innocence looks like and what the burdens need to be and what punishment looks like and what the purpose of punishment is, right? We we have moved very far from the idea that our criminal legal system was going to rehabilitate people or was going to put people through a system and then try to ensure that they were restored so they could return to communities. Instead, we moved just to sort of a punishment model, which not only doesn't restore people, but harms people, and then they're released um, and they're more harmed. And there's been nothing for healing or restoration or their ability to go back into communities and be whole again. How's the data collecting going so far? I want to, I want to get to the good news because I know the bail project's made an incredible amount of progress. The results have been pretty compelling so far. Can you talk about what's happened thus far? Sure. So we're learning some real fundamentals. Um, so one of the things I think that's been, um, I already alluded to, which was that cases are being dismissed when we pay bail. That's happening everywhere. So we know that the coercive lever of cash bail is still very present and present in every jurisdiction. The other thing that we're learning is the failure to appears, the obsession with, you know, people won't come back to court are almost never intentional. They are almost always related to life circumstance. My boss said that if I miss one more day of work, he's going to fire me. My mom had a healthcare crisis and I had to take her to the hospital. I lost my childcare for today and I can't come to court because the judge said I can't bring my kid to the courtroom. The kinds of things that really impact people from low-income communities every single day, those failures to appear are almost never about fleeing and almost never about intention. And so that really raises questions about whether that really should be driving much of our policy reform at all. Um, So it's those kinds of things that we're looking at deeply. Obviously, we see the racial disparities in every single city we're in. There is not a single jurisdiction anywhere in this country that we operate in or that we know about where you do not see the disparate impact of the criminal legal system and cash bail falling on the backs of black and brown folks, people from marginalized communities and low-income communities. So we're, we're learning a ton every day. What's next on the horizon for you all? We want to put ourselves out of business, Andrew. <laughs> we want to get into our local jurisdictions, help systemic reform move forward, and then literally close down shop because a bail fund is no longer needed because cash bail is not holding people in jail cells any longer. That would be our dream. Um, <laughs> until that happens, we're continuing to take our model, spread it, talk about it, 
And that's really what's next for us is to continue to bailing people out, getting them home and proving the point that we can have a pretrial justice system that doesn't involve cash bail algorithms or ankle monitors or forms of surveillance and supervision. You can just let people be free, afford them the constitutional privileges that all of us are supposed to be entitled to. And maybe the silver lining here is that as cities continue to decarcerate in response to COVID-19, we're going to also be able to look at the lack of rise in crime rates, which will prove the point that we have all been trying to prove for so long and you don't need to hold people in jail cells and everybody will be better off if you don't. As someone who's working so hard in criminal justice reform and you're looking at Joe Biden as your Democratic nominee who, who hasn't been great there, how are you feeling going into 2020? I believe in the possibility for people to evolve I believe in redemption. Staying on brand. I love I, it. <laughs> I believe in redemption. I believe it for everybody. And I think people can evolve and I think people evolve yeah. their thinking. And what I actually think is that if you've had the same opinions for 50 years and you haven't evolved, you're not thinking deeply enough. Mm-hmm. And so I look at this as a moment for people to think really deeply and allow people to evolve generally. If you're thinking about a problem that you can solve in your lifetime. You're not thinking big enough anyway. So this work went on way before me and this work is going to go on way after me and all of us. But I welcome Joe Biden's evolution. I welcome Joe Biden's rethinking his position on the criminal legal system. I'm confident that he will do so. And I'm confident that he'll have good advisors who will shine a light on the harm that we've done over all these decades to people and put an end to it. Thank you for joining me on What We Don't Know. If you liked what you heard, we post the full interviews on our Patreon, patreon.com slash WWDK. If you become a patron, you'll have access to those full interviews plus other exclusive content. 50% of the revenue that this podcast generates goes towards the initiatives and organizations of our guests. So you'll not only be supporting this podcast, but you'll also be supporting some amazing, amazing work. If you'd like to follow us on social, we're at WWDKPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. On YouTube, you can find our channel if you search What We Don't Know Podcast. And if you go to our website, www.dkpod.com, you can sign up for our newsletter where we share all the latest content. All right. Hope this finds you happy, healthy, and safe. Take care.